2: Hello,
3: Captains. You're listening to episode 335 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And your weekly report on all things from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Thursday, September 14th, 2017. And available for download or streaming on Monday, September 18th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah.
1: And I'm Kenna.
3: And in our audio booth is our audio engineer, Winters. Now, this week, Tony had to take off, but no fear, Captains, because we have a very special guest joining us on this episode from the tri Transmissions Network, Jeff of Shoreleaf Podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you
0: so much for inviting me, Elijah. It's so strange to hear your voice like this, since I'm so used to seeing you in person.
3: I know, right? It's so funny that we... <laughs> Just so happened to have found out that we actually have been neighbors for God knows how long since since we started podcasting, uh, (laughs) and we now have had the opportunity of hanging out twice since Vegas, including the Wrath of Khan 35th anniversary celebration that we'll get to later on in the show. Well, Jeff, we're really excited to have you, but before we get into this week's show, we have a few reminders about the upcoming weeks, and hold tight, Captains, because this might sound a little confusing, but it's worth it. Starting the week of September 24th, the week that Discovery launches, Priority One will be moving to a new date
1: and time. That's right. So starting with episode 336, we will be publishing our shows on Fridays. So episode 336 will air on Friday, September 29th, and all our shows thereafter will also air on Fridays.
4: So what about our live
3: shows?
1: Don't worry, we're still planning to record our episodes live, but that's going to happen on Tuesday nights now, at 11pm still, starting with episode 336.
3: Now, Captains, if you're wondering why we are making this change, that's because of Discovery. We plan to reintroduce our segment titled On Screen, with a weekly recap and short analysis of the new Star Trek series on CBS All Access.
1: Speaking of which, if you do subscribe to All Access, please don't forget to use our affiliate links when you subscribe. Just go to PriorityOnePodcast.com and click on the big banners.
3: Well, Kenna, tell us what we've got coming up this week.
1: Well, this week we're trekking out some big names who might have been cast as Commander Cisco but weren't. TV Guide brings us a closer look at the sets of Discovery. And we get a sneak preview of the new Star Trek theme song. And, of course, there's controversy over press coverage of the Discovery premiere. In Star Trek Online news, we've got details on a new ship bundle in the Sea Store, more about that new fleet holding coming with Season 14 Emergence, and we're taking a spoiler-free look at the latest featured episode Beyond the Nexus, which brings Geordi into stow. Later, Jace is here with another Trek Lit 101. And as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages.
3: Speaking of those hailing frequencies, captains, you know that we love to keep the conversation going from week to week, and we love to hear from you. So please reach out to us. We're at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at Priority One Podcast.com.
1: This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. From as little as a dollar a month, you can support our show and keep us broadcasting to you every week. So to find out more and perhaps add your support, please visit Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. And we do thank all of our patrons for their support.
3: Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek Multiverse. what places? I don't
1: know. Then let's trek it out. A few weeks ago, we joked about Star Trek having fewer degrees of separation to so many things than does actor Kevin Bacon. Well, we have several more connections, too. Could you imagine Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor, as Captain Benjamin Sisko? What about Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, actor Anthony Head? Well, in a tweet by TrekDocs on September 7th, a list from a July 23rd, 1992 UK casting session was published, and later confirmed by the team behind the DS9 documentary. Both actors came into audition for that role. Now, in an interview with TrekMovie.com, Ira Stephen Bear suggests that it was unlikely that they would cast anyone other than a person of color for the role of Cisco, and that the team was just doing their quote, due diligence. End quote.
3: Now it, it it's not just the list, but the Deep Space Nine documentary Twitter account actually posted screenshots hmm. from the video recorded auditions for <sighs> for both of them. Now whether or not those auditions will make it into the Deep Space Nine documentary has yet to be determined, according to
1: uh, Trek Movie. But that's that's interesting. Oh God, I hope so. How fun would that be? I'm sorry, Giles as mm. as Cisco. It would be a thing.
3: <laughs> it would be very. It would be very passive.
1: You know. I, yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> I'm having trouble thinking about this because I'm I'm envisioning. I'm not envisioning. Uh, Capaldi doing his interpretation of Cisco. I'm imagining Capaldi as the doctor playing Cisco, so it's just not working for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, of course, at the that time he wouldn't have known that he was going to be yes. the doctor, but. <laughs> or would he have because he's a time oh. lord? He may well have done. It. No, but you've seen the thing. Peter Capaldi was a huge Doctor Who fan. Yeah. So that was maybe mm. maybe he did know. Who knows?
3: Well, hopefully, we'll be able to see some of those auditions in the Deep Space Nine documentary. Now, Captains, in an attempt to flex their CPU muscle, Intel teamed up with PC World to demonstrate the potential of their i9 multi core processor. Now, for all of you technophiles out there, this machine is the granddaddy of all current gaming machines. And, although not really designed for even the prosumer, The machine demonstrates just how powerful the Intel processor really is. Now, what did they play? Well, they hooked up four Oculus Rifts to one machine, and together in one room, on one PC, played Star Trek Bridge Crew VR. Now, for just a moment, imagine, if you will, that money was of no consequence to you. No concern. It just flows out of your pockets. You're like Scrooge McDuck. And that you could afford to own four VR headsets and one machine, one machine, to invite all your fellow Trekkies to live out your starship dreams. It's just awesome. It brings a tear to my eye. (laughs) Now, we won't go into the nitty-gritty specs of this monster machine. You'll have to click to the links to PC World to find out all about it. But it is indeed an impressive piece of computing machinery, Jeff. You're a, you're a techie like I am. I mean this this machine was amazing. Very encouraging for Intel's
0: new line of CPUs, by the way. Um, you know, running four separate mm-hmm. installs of Windows 10 on a single machine is impressive, and that each game, yep. in, each instance of the game was running on its own independent machine. It was it was like they were all running on their own machines, wow. uh, from what I saw. So that's pretty amazing. And I kind of glance over at my poor nine year old
3: aging gaming PC and. It kinda of wheezes <laughs> a soft, dusty yeah. sigh.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, poor thing. I agree, yes. Mind mine I didn't I actually didn't open the article on my home computer because I didn't want yeah. to hurt its feelings. <laughs>
1: the, the thing is about something like this, it's not a matter of if that'll be possible. It's only a matter of time before that's just a thing that you can do. Yes. yes.
3: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: because if you think of what our gaming console... If you think what our phones can do, uh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. compared to PCs of mm-hmm. the olden days, in ancient times, as mm-hmm. my son likes to say, um, yeah, it's it's just a you know, wait around for a couple of years, and that'll be just normal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeff, why don't you tell us about TV Guide?
3: Yeah, so
0: media outlets are getting tours of the Star Trek Discovery sets. I'm quite envious of that. And TV Guide was there to offer 23 secrets that they learn. Now, we're not gonna go into each of the points they make, but we'll highlight some more of the interesting ones. Uh, For starters, were the practicality of the sets. Now, this is something that was also pointed out in a recent issue of Star Trek Magazine. Uh, The Discovery sets are not only detailed, but they're practical, in other words. They work to one degree or another, and there isn't a whole bunch of green screen that the actors would have to imagine Interacting with now, according to TV Guide article, the bridge may not have the same aesthetics as TOS, despite it being ten years prior. But there seem to be plenty of touchstones, uh, you know, in Captain Lorca's ready room, which is connected to the bridge. Uh, You won't find a conventional sitting desk, but a standing desk, pretty modern, actually, today's standards. And battle maps that are supposedly filled with plenty of Trek nuggets. Hashtag Trek Nuggets for those fans that plan to analyze each frame of those episodes.
3: <laughs> ha ha! I got our guest to say Trek Nuggets. Uh, I was life. tricked. I was fooled. Shameless. Damn you!
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, it's funny. The standing desk reminds me of uh, Admiral Helena Kane's ready room from Battlestar Galactica in her in her in her Battlestar Pegasus. Right? Remember, yeah. they made a big yes. deal about it. That she's like, "No, nah, I don't. I don't want to sit down. I lose." I lose momentum sitting down. Um, I was listening
4: right, to on. that. That's exactly what I thought as well. It was the very first thing that popped into my mind.
3: So obviously Captain Lorca is probably going to be as like rigid as Admiral Helna was in Pegasus in Battlestar Galactica on her ship. And you know what, though? I hated Helna. I oh, yeah. Know. She was easy to hate. I, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And that actress, man, her. she played it well. Yes, you did want to hate her. So she did a fantastic job. She did a fantastic job. But um, I don't want to I don't know that I want to hate Lorca. I don't know that I want to go into this hating Lorca thinking, oh, man, he's going to be like Admiral Kane from Battlestar Galactica. I hope not, because especially early on, I don't want to start hating him early on and being like, man, I wish this guy would just fly out of an airlock.
1: Dude, can I just point out that you are like you are you are basing a lot of supposition over the fact that the guy has a standing desk. (laughs) I would like to have a standing desk. Maybe he just got
0: a bad back.
1: I yeah, sure exactly. He Maybe he's got lumbar issues. We don't know. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough, <laughs> Kenna. You know. Fair
3: enough. Fair enough. You, you, you I, win that round.
1: <laughs> I, I personally, I love the fact that, that the sets are kind of interactive like that. I think it'll make it that much better, that much more believable. Um, it reminds me of in The Next Generation, because, of course, the the car's displays were static, there, but they were kind of, you know, kind of lights going on behind them or something. Um, Do you remember what's the one? Oh, Rascals. It's in Rascals oh. when uh, Commander Riker is talking to the Ferengi and then he's over on the side. He's doing the hand thing to release the uh-huh. controls to the... Um And I just thought, that's a brilliant bit of acting because there's no feedback. There's no, like, tactile feedback at all on those things. He's just he's playing around on buttons on a piece of plastic and it was it was a little hard to kind of believe because that was a bit of a stretch but now we'll actually have something that's a little more interactive and a little more real to kind of play off of
3: i'm really looking forward to the fact that they have invested so much effort into building these sets and so practically i you know like it took me a while to realize what that word really meant in terms of practical sets Right. That these are these like practical starships were used in, in special effects for things like the Wrath of Khan. Right. Or, or these older movies that it was actual models yep. versus versus CGI, computer generated images. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it, too. I think it's going to add a, a, it's going to make it easier for the actors to act like you mentioned, you know, in the, in the Riker example, and it's going to make it so much more immersive. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I agree. I've heard, I've heard far too many interviews with actors and actresses who complain about, you know, having a piece of tape on the ground that they're supposed to react to. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to react <laughs> yeah. to something that's actually there in front of you.
1: Now, speaking of the practical effects on the set, TV Guide also noticed something unique about the lighting. On the Discovery set, the lighting is much more natural, that is, it's coming from the hallway lights, from the screens. This allows for less of the stage-like feel, like in TNG or the original series, and more of a natural, realistic feel.
3: So the other night I was watching Star Trek Generations, and I kind of was live-tweeting as I was watching it. And despite having seen the film dozens of times... I had not noticed the drastic difference in lighting in Generations versus the Next Generation television series, right? And it's the same exact set, but the lighting completely changed that ship and how they acted on that ship and on that set. You had shadows. I mean, I was like, holy crap, I can't, I I have never noticed shadows aboard the Enterprise before, but the Enterprise D. And here it is. This lighting just bouncing off the walls. It was, it it really brought the ship to life. Kind of like the new lighting system brought the sh- brought Star Trek Online reinv- reinvigorated reinvigorated uh, Star Trek Online. Mm-hmm. And so what what they mean really by practical lighting, like it, it, here's an, a really good example. In Generations, the, everybody's in Ten Forward, and they're in front of, and the ship is orbiting the Amagosa Star after they save. Yeah. The people from the, bat, the, the the space station, the lighting in Ten Forward is is a, a rich yellow, and shadows are casting on the walls, and it's the yellow the golden yellow from the sun. Now, if you watch any if you watch any scene in Ten Forward, it's this like medical office, doctors white, with no shadows, everything's gray yeah. and white
1: because it's the Marriott in space, right? The Hilton it's the Marriott in space, yes. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so I with excellent I, lighting. I really like that they're using more natural lighting or attempting Mm -hmm. to recreate natural lighting to bring a more realistic feel to the series.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, There was one other difference um, with something like TNG. They... They used to use only one hallway, and they used sort of camera tricks and lighting to make it feel uh, longer than it was or or like it was a different hallway. Discovery sets, on the other hand, uh, apparently have massive hallway structures that extend and twist and branch, and they actually have rooms attached as well.
3: I'm really looking forward to to watching this series.
1: Well, so are critics, but too bad. They're going to have to wait. Now, while several media outlets are overflowing with pre premiere goodies for Discovery, uh, like interviews with the cast, set tours, behind-the-scenes access, not much is known about the actual quality of the show, the story, or the acting, because according to Vox, CBS, quote, hasn't sent out screeners to critics, end quote. Right now, the only review we've received has been from CBS CEO Les Moonves, who back in August, during an investor call, said, quote, I've now seen the first six episodes, and I can assure you that it is terrific. It is the perfect vehicle to take all access to the next level and beyond. End quote. Now, io9, in their typically cynical style, went on to blast CBS and scream doom and gloom over the fact that there seems to be an embargo, at least according to a tweet by an Ain't It Cool News reviewer. Writer Catherine Trendacosta for io9 goes on to suggest that only crappy films and or horror films typically embargo, not films that producers are proud to show. She goes on to write, quote, Given all the problems Star Trek Discovery has had since it was first announced, I don't know whether it's the show is actually bad or if this is just another misstep on the part of CBS. End quote.
3: Sit back, kiddies. Elijah's got a rant. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. All right. Now, there is no doubt that I have been adamantly vocal about all the missteps CBS has taken with Discovery. Since 2016 and the announcement that it was exclusively on CBS All Access, still feeling a little burned about it, since Fuller's departure, since the delay, since the second delay, since executives saying that sci-fi doesn't do well on television. The list of missteps over the last year and a half can go on and on. However, since they actually started production, and especially since San Diego Comic-Con, I have not been at all disappointed with what I've seen. In fact, I've been pleasantly surprised with what marketing and PR have done to hype the show from the teasers to the trailers to the interviews to the exhibit because gosh almighty that exhibit that was an amazing beautiful exhibit I think they've done a pretty good job at getting their crap together keeping their ducks in a row and even keeping the actors hyped during press junkets and interviews. Even if this is just another paycheck for them, and, and they don't give two craps about the Star Trek mythos, I believe that they're excited. Now, the fact that they're keeping this show so close to the chest, and having people sign NDAs, or not even releasing screeners, is no surprise to me. I think that... In this case, they'd rather avoid having to put out potential fires. Because let's face it, the Star Trek community is one of the most vocal fan communities out there. From Mm -hmm. mass mailing campaigns in the 1960s to podcasters that record in their homes, like us. We will be the (laughs) first to express our feelings about the new show. Now, Entertainment Weekly writer James Hibbard makes an excellent point that... Leaks or bad reviews wouldn't just impact CBS, but also the worldwide distribution partners they've made deals with, like Netflix, for instance. So, honestly, I think this is a good mood from CBS. Release the show, let the fans be the judge, and let the reviews for the show happen simultaneously between the professional critics and the fans. Not just overly cynical website reviewers. Think about this for a second. A few days prior to the Orville premiering, critics started writing their reviews and they weren't very good. Now, how did that influence your opinion prior to actually watching it yourself? And with Discovery, we already have our preconceived notions about the show that have been incredibly vocalized and easily accessible online or podcasts or what have you. CBS doesn't need any more bad press around Discovery or for the fans to be negatively influenced prior to, to the premiere.
0: I agree with you. I agree with you that it was a good move. But I maybe I'm a weird person because reviews, positive or negative, never affect whether or not I am going to watch something. So specifically about the Orville, I mean, I read the negative reviews that were coming out, and I was still amped to watch it, and I still watched it. So, And, and I can't imagine... What anyone could say about Discovery in a negative review that would make me not want to watch it? And I said, well, they spent an hour trashing Jeff Hewlett on Discovery. Maybe I wouldn't watch it, but <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. So um, I, I don't know. I, I I can only imagine that those types of reviews. I, I can't see them affecting Trek fans' desire to watch it. it. It must be more about you know the average Joe who's deciding whether or not he wants to subscribe to CBS All Access to watch the show, right? I mean, I can see them defending that potential income.
1: I think both sides of this, uh, this, I wouldn't even call it an argument, but both sides of this discussion have got a point. Um, On the one hand, you have to wonder what are they hiding, Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know there is there is merit to, like Elijah said, leaving it and letting the fans have the first crack at it Mm -hmm. alongside the reviewers, because you know a lot of times. People in mainstream media kind of look at Star Trek fans, who, by the way, pay a lot of the bills of the Star Trek franchise, mm-hmm. um, as outsiders, and they don't necessarily the fans don't necessarily agree with uh, the critical reviews. And I think it could influence how how people decide whether they decide to sign up for CBS All Access, for instance. Um, and then, and um, and i think Elijah's right as well that it's not just the domestic audience that has to worry about that it's also the the audience abroad and big stakeholders like netflix
3: well captains that leads us to our first community question for this episode what do you think was it a good move for cbs to embargo the show from reviews prior to the global premiere Are you like Jeff who isn't influenced and doesn't care or a diehard Trekkie no matter what that's going to watch the show? Now you can answer our community questions by visiting our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO335 or by replying to us on our social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter. Speaking of something to
0: review right now for Star Trek Discovery, CBS released a teaser for the main theme of Star Trek Discovery featuring a short review with Jeff Russo, and it's pretty awesome. So, unfortunately, we can't play it for you, so be sure to click through to the link in the show notes, but it definitely calls on several familiar themes that we are already familiar with, and I have been feverishly trying to avoid spoilers for Discovery. I've gone so far as to almost not watch trailers uh, because I just didn't want anything to be ruined. I wanted to go in completely blind, but this is a a spoiler that I was actually (laughs) not mad about having seen, uh, or heard, rather. So, nice. uh, and I'm happy nice. that there was a certain bit of familiar music there uh, near the end.
3: Yes. Yeah. Thank God we don't have another Rod Stewart song. Oh my God, yes.
1: I was actually really, really pleased, because it's it's a weird thing. For some reason, I just think all, when I think about Star Trek themes, I think they're all the same. I think they're all, I think they're all TN, the TNG theme. <laughs> In my right. brain, and I'm always surprised when I hear Voyager or whatever, and I'm like, "What's that?" Um, and then I and then I remember, of course, DSN and Voyager had, you know, actually quite different ones. Um, we're not going to talk about Enterprise, and um, yeah, no, I was really pleased with it. I thought it was nice homage to, but yeah, its own its own thing.
3: I I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it's not overly complicated. It's a very musically and and minimalistic. Yeah, minimalistic, not overly complicated. You know, I'm trying to listen to it as a musician as well and it just it just flows very very well. And in the teaser that we heard, you almost mm. got a federation and a klingon dichotomy in the theme, right? You you heard it get a little intense and I think that that works because obviously this first season we're going to be you know the, the 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 conflict is between the Federation and the Klingons. I don't even want. I'm not even going to say that they're the antagonist because I don't think that they are. I, yeah, I'm I'm really pleased with this this theme, um, and I'm looking forward to hearing it full on, and possibly getting our our hands on a on a soundtrack. Right, because hopefully you know, hopefully there'll be a a soundtrack for this series. Right, I would think.
1: You know what I thought about the theme? I thought I already knew it. Now, that's a weird thing to say, but I was mm. watching them perform it, and I was kind of going, I know, where, I know where it's going. I know where yeah. the next note is. I know where... And, of course, I haven't heard it before, and it isn't the same as any others, but I f- it felt familiar, and it felt, it felt like I'd heard it before, which I personally think is, is really, really good.
3: Yes, yes. I, it felt more familiar to me than even the Star Trek Beyond compositions.
1: Well, keeping with the musical theme this week, it might have been years since he played the Doctor on Star Trek, but Robert Picardo has kept his vocal pipes in shape, and for a special video published by the Planetary Society, he sings a touching farewell ode to the Cassini space probe, to the tune of Verdi's La Donna Immobile from his Rigoletto. Cassini, originally launched in 1997 as a joint venture between NASA and the European Space Agency, met its end on September 15th as it burned up in Saturn's atmosphere.
0: Can I just tell you how much I love Bob Picardo's sense of humor?
3: Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes,
0: you can. <laughs> I love his enthusiasm in this video. I mean, he's so well, See, yeah, I haven't watched it yet. Oh my god, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. He, he gets so into it. He has a lot of gesturing going on, and <laughs> it's, it's really good. You have to watch it. He's committed. I, I
1: guess I do, yes. He's committed.
0: So one last thing before we move on. A few weeks ago, we reported that Jason Isaacs, who plays Captain Lorca of the Discovery, was told he couldn't say God during a scene. That's the word God. In a follow-up interview with IGN, Scott Kalura, Aaron Harbert suggests that the incident was blown way out of proportion and the directorial note was specific to Isaac's character, not a broad statement about the philosophy behind the show. Harberts told IGN, quote, We had no interest in killing God, you know, and by God I mean anyone's God. I think the word is, and our Star Trek universe is open to any and all belief systems. The Klingons absolutely have some sort of faith. You see a Klingon funeral in our pilot. I want to actually do some storylines about it. I think the best way, instead of making, you know, pronouncements about that is let's tackle some storylines. Let's talk about faith. Let's talk about what place it has in the future. Let's talk about what it makes people do. Let's talk about encountering new ones. End quote. Now, having sat in discovery panels in Vegas this year, I came out with it being very clear to me that they're gonna stick with the philosophies of Star Trek. So honestly I didn't think much of this news when I heard about it. And I think this quote just kind of reinforces my own interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's easy to take this kind of stuff out of context, honestly. In, in the internet age, it happens all the time. I mean, especially when details yeah. about something you're looking forward to seeing are scarce. I think people will take any drips and try to turn them into an ocean. So I think it's a whole mm-hmm. lot of talk
3: about mm-hmm. nothing. But I- I'm actually pleased that they are addressing it because, I mean... <laughs> even klingons have a very ritualistic culture and they believe in an afterlife in 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 life beyond death so to speak right mm-hmm. i don't think that i think to actively ignore faith in a culture that in a in a let me not say culture because it's not just it's not just any one culture but an entire globe i mean mm-hmm. how many faiths do we have on just this one planet right so, how many yeah. belief systems do we have and, you know, I don't want to get into some deep philosophical discussion here, but it's important to acknowledge them in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. And one would, would guess that in a universe of infinite diversity and infinite combinations, that we're not the only planet that believes in some kind of higher power. For you sure. know? Mm-hmm. Um, so to dismiss something that... That guides people's lives in one way, shape, or form. I think is doing, is is telling, a, is, is doing injustice to potential storytelling. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. So, um, whether or not you believe or not, mm-hmm. both stories can be told very easily, and it's important to tell both stories. So I'm glad that that it's not it's not this this misinterpretation of Gene Roddenberry's "In the Future There Is No Religion." I don't think that that was the case. I think it was that I think it was that people maybe we're more tolerant of each other's faiths and beliefs versus we've moved past X, Y, and Z, you know? So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, it's I good. I think, I think this is a, this was, I think this was a very diplomatic and very encouraging interpretation of, of accepting not just, not just people's multiple faiths, but also cultures. Agreed.
1: That wraps up some of the biggest stories this week from the Star Trek multiverse. Now let's find out what happened in Star Trek online.
2: Computer Status Report. Status. Incoming message. I'm
1: only in the mood for good news today. Well, Captains, welcome once again to STO News, where this week we're celebrating the release of the featured episode Beyond the Nexus, starring LeVar Burton as Captain Jordy LaForge. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about that, we've got a couple of announcements regarding some new ships in the Sea Store and details about the upcoming new fleet holding.
3: First up, the new ships. Yay, ships! The three new Tier Six starships that make up the new Allied Flight Deck Cruiser Bundle are all from species allied with the main three factions. They are the Tellarite Pralim Flight Deck Assault Cruiser, the Orion Blackguard Flight Deck Assault Cruiser, and the Suliban Silic Flight Deck Assault Cruiser. All three ships come with the ship itself and an Admiralty card. All three ships come with the ship itself and an Admiralty card, and a fleet version is also available too. They all share a universal console and ship trait, so let's have a look at these. The universal console is called the IFF manipulator and effectively casts Confuse on your enemies. For a short time, your primary enemy target will also become the primary target of the rest of your enemies, and it suffers a defensive debuff as well. The starship trait is a nifty one too. It's called Majority-Minority, and has different characteristics based on whether allies outnumber enemies, or vice versa. If you're in the majority, you get increased defensive capability. And if you're in the minority, you get boosts to damage and turn rate. All three ships also come with matching hangar pets, which, once acquired, can be used on any carrier. The Allied flight deck cruisers are available in the Sea Store now, individually for... 3,000 zen or as a multi-faction bundle of three for 6,000 zen winters what do you think about these ships man honestly they really didn't do anything for me
4: and i know quite a few people that have that same opinion about them mm. just the admiralty cars are nice uh, but there's nothing that is jumping out at me that makes me want to you know oh i have to have that ship or that bundle
1: I like the concept of the of the console that uh, that sort of confused casting console I kind of like I like it conceptually that's a that's a thing that I like doing in something like Final Fantasy I know it's a very different game but um, I do kind of like that concept um, I'm not sure I would necessarily use it I'm a spacebar basher sorry <laughs> but I like the concept
3: so I am. I'm looking at the ships artistically, and where's the Orion ship in the blog? I don't see it.
1: It's the middle one. Yeah,
3: the middle one. Yeah,
1: the Orion one and the Tellarite one. In fairness, do okay. look very similar. They're both kind of greenish, in the blog. So. It...
3: Yes, Kenna, 100. percent I completely agree. I, uh, I, in terms of their aesthetic design, I'm not really impressed by any of these ships. I don't. There's nothing that I really want. Um, mm. And the Suleban one. I, Looks like a flat Ferengi ship. I
4: tell you what I do like is the fighters that come with the Suleiman ship, because it's actually the fighters from Enterprise. And I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Well, in addition to the new Allied flight deck cruisers, we've also had some new details about the upcoming brand new fleet holding that's launching with Season 14 emergence next month. The joint Lucari and Kantari-themed ground-based holding will be called the Draenur Colony Fleet Holding, and it'll be located in the Alpha Quadrant. It'll be the first full five tiered holding since Fleet Starbases came out way back in 2012. That was Season 6. Like Fleet Starbases, it features a main track and three subtracks, all with five tiers and a few new features that we haven't seen before in Star Trek Online. So let's start with what we already expected. As your fleet levels up your holdings, you'll be able to build up the exterior and interior of the colony. You'll gain access to mail, your bank, the tailor, and the ship selector, and of course you'll also unlock a plethora of new weapons, new gear, and new items that fleet members can purchase with fleet credits. But what about the stuff that we haven't seen? Now, unlike other fleet holdings, the items you'll need to upgrade the colony can be found in the ground map itself. You'll need to go on missions to collect the resources you need to get to the next level and there's a new ground queue of sorts that can be triggered by the fleet leadership at any time, provided that you have enough simulation provisions. The backstory on this is that it's combat training for the troops, and it'll eventually become customizable as your fleet advances. The new fleet holding is now available for testing on the Tribble test server, and again it will be available to play on for Z's when Season 14 Emergence launches sometime in mid-October. Winters, uh, what's what's the reaction been like in the fleet so far?
4: The reaction within the Priority One Armada has generally been pretty positive, actually. Yeah, people are looking forward to it. They're very curious as to what the gear is that you're going to get out of it. Uh, of course, that blog came mm-hmm. out uh, a day or two ago. There's definitely some interesting stuff. Probably the biggest thing that stuck out in my mind and a few others is that we are now going to have a new type of fleet tactical console. This one is going to have an engineering theme where it can uh, restore hull hit points. So that's okay. going to be, uh, you know, provide some interesting choices rather than buffing up either crit chance or crit severity with the ones mm-hmm. that come from the Spire. Mm-hmm. Something else that I, I noticed was, I believe it was on the logistics track that there will be a two to ten percent reduction in all fleet project cooldown timers. And
1: Right.
2: Interesting. Yeah,
4: that's what I thought of it. I thought it was interesting. I don't think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Ten percent when it's at max level is gonna knock off two hours off the twenty hours that each project needs. What do you do? Two (laughs) hours is nothing major. As for concerns, we've talked about it before here on Priority One, and I think a much bigger issue is the huge costs that there are in getting a single day's worth of projects on cooldown for every single holding. Mm -hmm. And this has just upped that by a huge amount because it's a five-tier holding. Small fleets, I imagine, are not happy to see this thing. Because it is yeah. a huge grind for them. And I'm guessing small fleets are probably going to find it hard to run those special events that you were talking about a minute ago.
1: Yeah. I have a concern about the, the special events. Um, I You know, we talked before with Al, Captain Gecko Rivera, about the worry about uh, fracturing people into different social zones. And the, the only thing that I, I will wait and see... I hate to say that wait and see but we'll have to wait and see is because the provisions and things that you need in order to advance your fleet are found on that fleet ground map um, and because there's this sort of queue that can be run for just your fleet I I do fear a little bit that it will make it so that your fleet hangs out just on your fleet colony and not you know in a space dock or other places but we'll have to wait and see how people actually end up playing that but I do worry about that
3: you know, it's it's we mentioned. You mentioned Al Rivera earlier today. You know, one of the things that I do remember, and he has said, even in in a recent interview, not long ago, was that he reminded players that, and if it wasn't him, it was definitely somebody in leadership that mm-hmm. the cryptic team put together, you know, twenty people or so in within the their their development for, team, without any dev powers, without any dev modifications, and tried to grind through five tiers of the original Starbase, right? So I can't imagine that they would have released something like this without having tested it within that that 20-man fleet, right? And, of
1: course, it is on the triple test server, so there will be a a certain amount of testing going on there as well. Yes,
3: and additional, additional data coming in there. But hold on a second. How many people really go on to triple, especially now, seven years into the game? I mean, the people that go on to triple test server have to be like the diehard. I mean, we're talking about like legit min maxers are, are actually sharing the switching over the game over to triple. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't have the numbers for these things. I'm only assuming here. But I don't know what, how much reliable data they're going to be getting from triple nowadays
4: regarding what you were saying there about uh, the testing of it, I believe I know what it is that you're referring to, and if I remember correctly, it was uh, Jeremy Borticus-Randall that said that, and if I remember correctly, he stated that when they originally designed the fleet holding system, so that was the Starbase, they based it on 25 active members. The problem is that was the Starbase We've had a Mm -hmm. huge number of additional holdings added onto that since. And the costs have skyrocketed immensely. And now we're getting another
3: five-tier one. I think the the next question we should ask them is, hey, are those 25 people still playing, like, developing this fleet? Like, is that Mm -hmm. still a thing? Or are you guys now basing all these fleet holdings and now this new one on player data? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that, I think that's the the question we should be asking them because of, yeah.
1: right. So moving on to current content. I mentioned before that we wanted to talk about uh, the most recent highly anticipated featured episode Beyond the Nexus, which features Lavar Burton in his role as Geordie LaForge the first time we've seen him in Star Trek Online. Now, without getting spoilery for this week, why don't we share our experiences? Elijah, why don't you start us off?
3: Well, Kenna, that's right. This new episode called Beyond the Nexus takes place in the main timeline of the game, as in, it's not a time travel episode, and it's another standalone episode, not unlike Survivor, where we got a visit from Tasha Yar. Now, Jordy LaForge is now captain of the USS Challenger, en route to investigate the disappearance of the starship Forrestal, which itself was investigating the Nexus from Star Trek Generations. Now, we said no spoilers. At least until next week. And we won't give away any, but it's worth playing this episode just for the thrill of walking the brand new Galaxy Class interior. And as a little bonus, you actually get a few accolades for exploring it properly. So do remember to click not now when asked to beam up. Spend a few extra minutes exploring because it will be worth it. Now, I have to take a moment here and thank Gabby for giving me the opportunity of jumping onto her interior, her Starship interior, which is the Galaxy class, which is unaffected by what's happening in the mission. It's a pure, clean experience, and I am so – here's – when the game first was published – the, the hallways of these starships were huge and so off-scale, and that was one of the biggest critiques about the game, is that just the player-to-environment scaling was just so way off. But whilst walking on the TNG bridge and walking through the hallways, it felt so immersive. It felt so real. The lighting was beautiful. The new lighting experience was just just worked so beautifully for this new interior, this new starship interior. I re- I really was taken back. I really was taken back. I fe- in for the first time in a long time, and I will admit this on the show. I I was pulled back into the Star Trek mythos. So great job to the environment artists that worked on this new starship interior. Great job on the lighting because i really really felt like i was i was I was watching an episode i was walking on the bridge of, of the set of what i watch every night before i go to bed
1: don't forget me engineering you could like touch the warp core yes you could walk around in there you can look up it just it's uh, it's a work of art
3: it's funny because a lockbox spawned right in front of the warp core <laughs> and I can't. And I in my in my brain, I immediately thought of the little cloud that pops out, and then the car oh, yeah, puts smiley, smiley face. Oh yeah, we draw the smiley face. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I thought about when the lockbox popped up. Um, what I didn't get a chance to try in Gabby's bridge was, uh, or Gabby's main engineering, was if I can go up the ladder to the second level of engineering. Oh, yeah, I tried. tried. Oh, man. You can't.
1: (laughs) Of course I tried. It was, like, the first thing I tried when I was, like, in engineering. I was like, I'm not leaving engineering until I've tried everything.
3: (laughs) Or the elevator. Tried it.
1: Nope. Yep. And you could not get into that little access panel that's just outside on the underside bit that they go into quite a lot. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Now, here's what I, what I find most fascinating is that I was turning corners that I had never seen before in the original series, right? So I'm thinking to myself, is this something that I've missed watching the, the, the episodes or is this something that they've had to add or fabricate or add in, in designing an interactive version of the TNG bridge? Are these parts of schematics that they've worked off? Because, for instance, main engineering when the turbo lift that you take to main engineering you never see what's to the right or left of the msd the master display panel of the the next generation enterprise d right mm-hmm. is, is there really a turbo lift when you turn right
1: or left is there is that yeah. really is that what happens they, when did they, they do come out of there occasionally when they, they do
3: they come out of there but is that that's a turbo lift
1: Apparently. my mind is blown <laughs> That's adorable. Oh, did you see well, I think it was there before actually on the old galaxy bridge. There's um, there's the bathroom.
4: I was going to mention and, that.
1: Yeah, I, the head. I missed that. And definitely I so uh, if you are facing the captain's chair, go up the left-hand side, the left-hand ramp, and there on, at the top on the left is the head, which is true to the schematics. That's where it would be. Um, and also, if you go in that same little tiny corridor, you can get into the observation lounge, which is where they hold all their fancy meetings and stuff. And you get an accolade for doing that.
3: You see, I didn't do that in the mission because I had done it on Gabby's... Bridge interior before, so I didn't get the accolade. So I'll have to do it again right. when I when I replay yeah. the mission.
1: So should we talk about the rewards? Why for not? The featured episode? Why not? Um, Ten So playing the featured episode while it's still featured will get you the usual rewards of an upgrade kit or a spec point and uh, some dilithium. And if you play it in consecutive weeks, you can also accumulate parts of the trilithium laced weaponry set. The two-piece set is called Speed Tweaks and gives you weapons haste and an increase to flight speed. And the three-piece set is called Reinforced Engineering, which basically buffs your defensive capabilities. Now, the first piece of the set this week is the Engineering Console Reinforced Armaments, and the additional pieces will become available over the next two weeks. Once again, the featured episode Beyond the Nexus is out now, and we would love to hear what you think. So that brings us to our community question, what do you think of the featured episode Beyond the Nexus and Jordy's debut in Star Trek Online?
4: In an effort to lend a hand to new players, or even surprise the most veteran captains in Star Trek Online, here's my weekly top tip. This week I'm going to talk to you about Tribble Carcasses, and more specifically earning Gold Press platinum for them. A few months ago, you may remember that I gave you a top tip of always having a cannibal tribble in your inventory at all times to stop your inventory from filling up with tribbles. If you'd done this, you would have found that once an hour your cannibal tribble consumed one common or uncommon tribble and left behind a triple carcass. Now, if you are a KDF character or KDF Aligned character, there is a special duty officer mission available for you from any security officer in game. These security officers can be found in places like Chronos, Deep Space Nine, etc. The mission that you're looking for is named Tribble Bounty. Selecting this mission will require 10 Tribble carcasses and takes 2 hours to complete. Upon successful completion, you will be awarded 1,000 Gold Press Platinum or GPL. For more information, we will leave a link in the show notes at priority forward slash PO335.
1: Well that's it for this week's Star Trek Online news, now over to Jace for another TrekLit 101.
2: Hello Captains, this is Jace with the latest edition of Trek Lit 101. Taking a break from the world of comics, we're going to look at something a bit different, and quite bizarre in fact. A field guide to the aliens of Star Trek The Next Generation by Joshua Chapman, age 11, edited by Zachary Auburn. Now this is not an official Star Trek product, it's labeled on the front cover as an unauthorized parody. Its format is also unlike other Trek guides and books, as this volume collects six zines covering the seasons of TNG. Seasons 6 and 7 are combined, apparently having featured fewer new alien races. There's also a segment covering some aliens that got skipped in the original run of the zines, plus adding races from the TNG films, though oddly omitting the Remans despite the inclusion of the Kolarans from Nemesis, as well as an interview with the author. The guide starts off as a 7th grade creative writing assignment, then continues first as extra credit in 8th grade, and later into high school just as an outlet for the writer. As such, it evolves as you go from cursive handwriting with crude drawings, to printed type in various formats, and somewhat better illustrations. Aliens are depicted via stills from the show, ostensibly photographed from the television screen at the time. The early zines especially are often funny, and led me to think back on my own opinions of the aliens of Trek when I was that age. I also found Troy and especially her mother, annoying, and loved Data and the fact that he had a cat. The Borg were the coolest when they appeared. And on all these points, young Jace agreed with young Joshua. However, as the book goes on, it's littered with references to the writer's home life, which increasingly seems like something he's escaping from into the universe of Trek, and which is strongly coloring his opinions about the various aliens. In fact, it gets quite dark, and also profanity-littered, as the author's voice veers more and more blatantly into autobiography. Now, none of this bothered me in and of itself, But I think despite the hints of such content in the back cover blurb, most people would be a bit surprised if they picked this up, seeming like sort of a kid's perspective, humorous Trek parody. In truth, it's something of a journal through the lens of Trek, of a very troubled young man from age 11 to 18. The closing interview with the author is even bleaker with a where is he now that certainly doesn't stay in keeping with the optimistic perspective of Trek. However, I don't think I can adequately review this book as opposed to merely describing it, without some spoilers. So, consider yourself warned. Spoiler alert! Uh, uh. After reading a few selections from this book, I was somewhat concerned. It seemed almost exploitive if it was all true, with this young man's descent into a nihilistic perspective with no end in sight, presented for the amusement of readers. It was also very odds from what one expected from a Trek guide of any kind. However, in reality, this is a work of fiction created by Zachary, Auburn, in zine form, so it seems, and distributed as if they were really written by the 11-year-old and up Joshua. Part of the experience of engaging with this work is both the initial feeling that it is real, and the eventual revelation of its fictional status. So for those of you partaking in the spoiler, I do apologize for ruining that aspect. However that said, I did enjoy this book. Both that mystery, if you will, aspect and the actual content. While the author is fictional, I'm sure there have been many fans of Trek who also found solace from their real-life woes in it, even if there were also times we were frustrated that Trek's future wasn't even better than TNG showed us at the time. Also, there is a ton of humor in it. Auburn clearly knows Trek, and geek culture more generally, quite well, and includes references to everything from the Hitchhiker's Guide to Dungeons & Dragons, done with a deft hand just like a teen fan might do it. While the darker side of the storyline is more tragic than cathartic, it's not unrealistically portrayed either, or especially played for laughs in and of itself. Like life, it's a mixed bag. Quite an offbeat little book, but if any of this intrigued you, it's not terribly long either, just over 200 pages and heavily illustrated. I would say it's worth trekking out. That's all for this month's Treklet 101. Now let's open Hailing Frequencies and see what's incoming.
1: Message
3: coming in,
2: sir. Hailing Frequencies open. See, we are getting to know each other.
3: And again, a big thanks to Jace for this week's literary review. And now captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages.
1: Last week's community question was, would you like to see the uniforms in Star Trek discovery evolve into the more familiar colors we're used to?
3: Via our website, Jim D. I would like to see the uniforms evolve closer to the colored ones we're more familiar with. However, I agree with you that they don't have to be exacting to the 1960s sensibilities. For example, as much as I enjoyed them as a young man, I don't think we should bring miniskirts back to Starfleet officers.
1: Yeah, they're just not practical. (laughs) Not
3: practical. From our website, MGX
4: says, The uniforms are just another symptom of the reimagining. That said, I don't expect to see original style uniforms, but a nod to the colors would be nice. The discovery ones are too fancy in my opinion.
1: A nod would be nice but uh, I did see like somebody done a mock-up I want to say on Twitter or one of these articles that had like the, the, the uniforms but instead of the blue it was like red and gold and it was not a good look.
4: I didn't see that.
1: It was it was like head to toe. So it looked the red uniform in particular looked like um, you know those crazy guards in Star Wars that they're coming out with. They're like head to toe red with the funky helmets and the uh-huh. like yes. the javelin things that just sorry look kind of silly because they're in head to toe bright red. That was <laughs> that was the, the mock up. So I I would not quite like to go where it's all blue now. Go to like all red. That would be a bit much on the old red thing, but um, a nod to the colors would be nice.
0: From the website, Chio Umiku says, I would really love to see them evolve into the iconic uniforms we all know and love, or at least use the color divisions. Maybe even a teal for medical? Nah. That's not till the TNG era.
1: Oh, well, that's a little bit confusing, <sighs> that whole Chio. teal blue business. Depends on what yeah, season of TNG true. you're looking at. <laughs> as long as there's some
3: velour in there, I'm a happy guy. <laughs> Shaw Newboy writes in, wonderful show, everyone. Yes, the colors should evolve towards TOS. Now, captains, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of our community questions because one of the reasons that uh, we brought Jeff on this week is to also share with you some of the experiences that we had celebrating the 35th anniversary of The Wrath of Khan, which was re-released in theaters on two exclusive engagements, two nights, by Fathom events at uh, certain movie theaters throughout the country. So I want to jump into it a little bit. Now, Jeff and I had the opportunity of also meeting up with several of the New York City Star Trek fan yes. and meetup groups to experience it. And I got to tell you, there is no better way to experience something like this than with a theater full of Trekkies.
1: Yes. <laughs> nice.
3: Right, Jeff? Well, Jeff, what was your biggest takeaway from all this? No doubt. No doubt. Well, uh,
0: wow. It's one takeaway, huh? Well, definitely uh, seeing it in New York City uh, with not only a bunch of Trekkies, but half of them were people that I knew from convention going and from being at the New York away team meetups uh, so many times. It Seeing a movie like that that you love with an audience that's very active and participates in the film and cheers and claps and you can, you can hear people around you murmuring the lines of dialogue as you're mouthing them to – it's it's a very different type of experience, and um, you know it, it's a very special type of experience, and it's not something that I have experienced that many times. Usually, only with revivals. I think the last time I mm-hmm. saw something like this was at the Back to the Future um, re-release when they did the, the the Blu-ray anniversary release, and they were playing that as a Fathom event in the local theater. So, and you know, it's, and it's another thing that I, I liked from the the Hamilton showing the second showing that we went to is that their people were bringing their kids to see this and Mm -hmm. that that brings a lot of joy to me that people are still introducing their children to star trek and it 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 makes me hopeful for the future that trek is going to live on and continue on and keep being you know reintroduced to, to generation after generation so I think those are probably my two biggest takeaways from these shows.
3: So, Kenna, you, unfortunately, were kept from watching the films twice.
1: Yeah. Uh, why
3: don't you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Uh, well, so, if you didn't know, there was a hurricane at the weekend. Um, yeah, so the the Wrath of Khan was being shown on the 10th and also on the 13th. Well, on the 10th, obviously, uh, we were having a hurricane. Um, on the 13th, I actually I actually went all the way down to my nearest cinema, which is about a half an hour away. They had told me that it was going to be on. We got there and they said they'd had to cancel it because the, the network that distributed it, uh, they couldn't get it to work. Um, and uh, as is pretty common with a disaster kind of thing like this, there was actually a curfew on, so they couldn't put on any shows that started after 6 o'clock. So the 7 o'clock showing was canceled as well. So I got turned away, and it was very sad. I was even dressed in my Star Trek gear. I had my Delta. I was so excited and totally disappointed. However, I have to point out, uh, Will Wright has just posted in in our Facebook chat that they've added an an additional date, and I went onto the Fathom Events website, and sure enough, they've got a little tab on there that says September 21st Encore, and so I'm hoping that the details haven't come up yet, so I will update as and when I know, but it looks like they'll be putting on an Encore presentation, and maybe, fingers crossed, I'll still get to go and see it, because I was devastated. (laughs) I was a very
3: sad little Trekkie. Kenna, well, I am so glad that you're going to have another opportunity to watch Star Trek The Wrath of Khan with your kids next Thursday. All right, so let's jump into some of the feedback that we received. We reached out to the community and asked, hey, did you get a chance to see The Wrath of Khan at your local theater? And uh, on Facebook, Lawrence, one of the organizers of the event, wrote, It was amazing watching the film on the big screen, especially with a room full of fans and friends who you know share the same passion for it that you do. I got to have the emotional catharsis that comes with the story and share it with others doing the same. In a lot of ways, that heightened the film for me, despite having seen it probably dozens of times, if not more. So, Ed O'Connell wrote, It was amazing
0: watching the movie on the big screen again. I saw Twock back in 1982. Actually, as did I. I was, God, what was I? Uh, born Circus, almost seven, seven or eight years old. Uh, as a ten-year-old, my father and yes, I've seen it hundreds of times on DVD or VHS. But was, uh, but to be able to see it on the big screen again took me right back. When the opening theme opened up and we saw the credits start, I honestly had
3: goosebumps. I know, and nothing added to that more than the the roarous applause that happened yes. when those opening credits started, right? Wasn't that amazing? It was
0: absolutely amazing. Ugh. Oh, you know what? Th- this this comment by Ed just sparked another thought in my head, and this was something that I took. My uncle took me to see this movie in the theater in 1982, and the, this, the, the hardest part of that movie for me to watch as a child was the, the Seti eel scene in the ears.
2: <laughs> yep. But
0: now... Seeing this movie to, the other day with you, the hardest part for me to watch is now the death scene. Mm-hmm. Totally flipped yeah, around. Right. Getting through that death scene is brutal for me now. And the SETI Eel thing is nothing. So it's amazing how I our know, perspectives I know, change. I
3: know, I know, I know. And especially that we lost Leonard Nimoy yes. too, right? It's just, it's, And there's, there's a scene, there's a dialogue that happens... Like they foreshadow his death, right, in the, in the, in the yes. earlier part, in like the first act of, of The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. And you're like, oh, man.
0: Yeah, you, you know what, too? And I, I, my memory, because I was so young um, when the movie came out, but I distinctly remember that there were some, some rumors that Spock was going to die in the movie before the movie came out in, you know, Trek magazines and, you know, news articles reviewing, you know, things like that. And I remember after seeing the movie, some, there were some other things that came out in print that were saying things like, oh, you know, they they used the Nimoy dying in the simulation or Spock dying in the simulation in the beginning to throw you off if you had Mm -hmm. read that spoiler or you thought that that was, you know, so you had the, I thought that was clever. I wasn't sure if that was actually the case or just something that seemed a convenient Explanation for, but I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm remembering it clearly now because I was very young at the time.
3: No, you, no, you are. Don Brainum in the Facebook chat uh, confirmed too. Oh, cool. Yeah, he backed you up on that. And
1: David Holkin of Trek Radio also wrote in. I went to see The Wrath of Khan with my fellow shipmates of the USS Saroyan Star Trek Club. We attended the screening in our Star Trek uniforms, with every series uniform represented. After the movie, we took a group photo of all of us shouting Khan which I'm not going to shout, but you can picture it. In the theater, there were moments when the crowd cheered and many teary eyes. I noticed every additional scene and bit of dialogue restored in the director's cut. Overall, it was a great experience.
4: Chris Tron wrote in and said, The movie came out two months before I was born, so this was my first opportunity to see it on the big screen. I loved it. The first thing to hit me was the score. With nothing more than a star field to look at, The music had me excited and grinning with anticipation. The next thing to really hit me was the cinematics. As the pre show interview alluded, with a smaller budget, the movie had to rely on story and directorial effort rather than special effects. The scene when the Enterprise leaves Space Dock made the ship feel so big. A completely different experience from today's sci-fi movies that, in my opinion, sacrifice suspense, excitement for high-dollar action. Excitement, something I think audiences are numb to now. Watching this movie on the big screen with the extended scenes is a fantastic
3: experience. Uh, Yes, 100%. James Cook wrote in via Twitter, looked pretty good on the big screen. The interview with Shatner was funny. Never knew Montalban needed a walker on set. You know, Jeff. You know, it was funny that we were, as we were watching the film, right? People were reacting to things that I never would have reacted to on my own, right? And I usually end up watching a movie like this on my own, because I don't have friends nearby. Hey, wait. Um, that hurts. That's true. no I do. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so, so, like, for instance, I, this is the this is the one of my biggest takeaways from it is that. They beam down to the Genesis cave, right? Mm -hmm. And Chekhov just had – he's lying there (laughs) shortly after the slug comes out of his ear. And he's lying there. And people are talking. And he has his eyes open. And he's looking around. And then Shatner and then Captain Kirk sends everybody off to scrounge for food. And there is Captain Kirk and Marcus having a very – in-depth conversation mm-hmm. about his son and there's Chekhov just lying there with his hand to his ear like oh, I'm not hearing this I'm not <laughs> hearing this oh my God what's happening
0: Can I pass back <laughs> out now I came to, to for sleep. a minute but I'm asleep again
3: I'm totally not here you got you have to watch you have to yeah. put that in right now pause this podcast put the put the wrath of Khan in right now. And just watch that scene and how awkward it is to have Chekhov there listening to this whole thing. Because then later on in the third act of the film, he comes back to this to the to the bridge after having recouped for a little bit. And you know he's looking at, at Kirk going, um, uh, do I say something? Do I no? Do I pretend like I don't know about his son? Oh man, this is awkward. <laughs> Captain, can I shoot some? Can I shoot some photon torpedoes for you, maybe? And we'll just pretend like do, do, nothing happened. Awkward. It is so. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And I wouldn't have noticed had it not been for somebody in the theater scream out, ha, ha, "Look at Chekhov! <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's because, you know, you're, you're always so focused. That's an intense conversation yeah. between Carol Marcus and Kirk. So you're always watching their facial expressions. You don't really, and Chekhov is kind of in the back, like off in the corner laying down I and mean, he's kind of small in the back so you kind of have to like divert your attention and focus directly on him just watch him keep your eyes on him resist the urge to listen to the dialogue or look at either one of their faces. just watch check off and you'll see what we're talking
3: about yes when you're watching a film like this on a smaller screen that's not theatrical you tend to miss these smaller things it doesn't matter whether or not you have a 32 inch or a 60 or a inch television unless you have are have that money that we were talking about earlier with the super duper computer unless you have the money to watch this on a massive screen some of these little nuances slip on by but when but more importantly is that when you're with when you're watching the film in a large group like that with people who, who are enjoying the moment it's not moviegoers who are like oh my god it's talking through the film I mean we've all seen the movie 300 times we know what's going to happen to have that kind of colorful commentary happen throughout mm-hmm. the film is something I th- thoroughly enjoy. Thoroughly enjoy going to these big events. Yeah. It happened during um, the Fathom events for the, the Blu-ray releases of The Next Generation when they were doing some of the episodes. Um, it happened when, way back when, I'm talking about years ago, I went to that same theater, AMC 25, and I watched The Menagerie when wow. they played it. Uh, in high wow. definition. And that was – that was. I don't think anybody was in the theater when I went. It was like five of us. Unless, Jeff, you were there. That would have been funny if you had been there that night.
0: No, we stumbled on another one of our in the theater at the same time moments, though, with the best of both worlds yes. screening.
3: Yes. Yeah, man. I'm telling you, it's it's funny. It's it, it, So if you were at the AMC 25 when, when the Menagerie was played, uh, the cage and Menagerie, that mix, in high definition, I was there too. But being in the theater and having that the, the audience give that colorful commentary is just amazing and so much fun. Captains, I strongly encourage that if you ever have an opportunity to catch a film like this, like a, a, a replay, a featurette like this, to, to do it. Make sure you do it because it's, it's, it's an experience. Well, that wraps up episode 335 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Women at Warp, go to podcasts.roddenberry.com. Now, captains, it doesn't end there. A big thanks to Jeff for joining us on this episode of Priority One Podcast. And Jeff, you have a slew of amazing podcasts that we have had the opportunity of sharing with our audience. Please tell us where people can find you and how they can subscribe to your shows. Thanks again for
0: inviting me to be here. This has been a heck of a lot of fun, and hopefully I get to come back and talk to you guys again really soon. So, yeah, we have a network, The Tricorder Transmissions. It's a, it's a Star Trek podcast network. You can find us at the thetricordertransmissions.com. We have several shows there, including our original mission and our upcoming relaunch of our Drawing Trek comic show. And we also have Shore Leave, which is our Star Trek convention community podcast hosted by myself and the wonderful Heather Barker. You can find that at ShoreLeavePodcast.com. And we also have a show that we recently started with the wonderful Jim Morehouse, uh, who was an extra on Enterprise for an episode. So he has a site called Trek Ranks, and he's been ranking Trek in all sorts of different themes and shapes and forms for a couple of years now. And we turned it into a podcast called Trek Ranks, and we have a different topic and different guests every other week and we've been doing that for about 10 episodes now and it's a lot of fun. Keep your eyes open too in the near future. We may have some new stuff hitting the airwaves, uh, probably near the December time frame maybe, and that's about it for now.
3: Awesome. Jeff, I gotta say that it's amazing that we're in each other's backyards because it gives us an opportunity to collaborate on special events like what happened on Sunday and on Wednesday for the 35th anniversary of The Wrath of Khan, and I look forward to working with you further down the road, man. It's It's been fun.
0: Yes, it's been great. It's, you know, we, I had a lot of fun at the two events, and we've been throwing a lot of ideas back and forth so i have a feeling uh you guys out there are going to be hearing a lot more from us in the near future
1: thank you jeff so before we go here's a reminder of what our community questions are for this week was it a good move for cbs to embargo star trek discovery from reviews prior to the global premiere and what do you think of the star trek online featured episode beyond the nexus and geordie's debut in the game
4: Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash podcast, or tweet us via one pod.
1: Don't miss a thing from the world of Star Trek. And starting next week... Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights. That's a change from Thursdays. And that's around 11 p.m. Eastern. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details.
4: And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to priority armadacom and sign up today. And don't forget that every Saturday night the Armada takes to our Twitch channel for some in-depth playthroughs of Star Trek Online. Follow us on
3: twitch.tv forward slash priority one. Captains, this episode of Priority One is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. And even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about this show, our other shows, and our friends over at Tricorder Transmissions. Invite your fellow Trekkies, because it's your support and your word of mouth that keeps us going.
4: Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com, covering the world of space sims including Star Citizen, Elite Dangerous, Descent Underground, and many more. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency. Is the logical choice.
3: Thanks to our audio team led by Michael McDonald, with assistance from Brandon Parker and Jake Morgan, with support from Midnight Shadow 7 of Hollow Media. Speaking of Jake Morgan, a big thanks to him for spearheading our social media endeavors, especially those Title It Tuesdays and Awesome Survey Sundays. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners over at Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. And thanks to Patreon, Associate Producer, Navy But Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible.
1: Enemy ship on sensors.
3: Red alert. Shields up.
4: Ready weapons.
1: Engage. shows thereafter will also air on Fridays. What about our live shows? Well, Winters, I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) Don't worry, our...
3: (laughs) So, so horribly. Winters, could you not read that and just ask the question? (laughs) He's like, what about our live shows? Those... (laughs) <laughs> uh. We plan to introduce a new segment. We plan to reintroduce our segment titled "On Screen" with a weekly
1: weekly recap. David Holkin of Trek Radio also wrote in and said, "I went to see twalk with my fellowship mates of the USS."
3: Twalk, uh, such a uh, such a, sounds a weird twalk. Walk.
1: Talk like. No, am education. I the only one? <laughs> <laughs> Take a talk on the wild side. She said, hey, baby. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. <clears> talk <throat> like a man. Talk
3: like a. Talk this way. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>
4: Oh, man. That's it. Okay, okay, okay. It's always feedback. It's always feedback.
1: Go, now go. To walk out the door. (laughs) 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 That's it. That's credit to Joey Brooks Rose in the chat. He (laughs) inspired that one. (laughs) Well, you can tell by the way I move my (laughs) (laughs) talk. No, no.
3: (laughs) Oh, Ray, these boots are made for trucking.
1: <laughs> One of these days, these boots are gonna talk all over you, <laughs> which makes it sound kind of gross. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Open the door. Get on the floor. Everybody talk the dinosaur. Twerk the dinosaur. Oh my I'm just reading him out from the chat now.
3: <laughs> oh my god! I think I know. I think I know what this week's episode <laughs> yeah. is, is going to be. It's going to be. One of these song titles.
1: Was it a good move for CBS to embargo Star Trek Discovery from reviews prior to the Global Global? Global. (laughs) Yeah. Global.
3: (laughs) Captains, this episode of Priority One is brought to you by you, our patrons, through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forwards. That was really weird, wasn't it?
1: (laughs) Brought to you by you. Let me